The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 to 34. Hear the word of the Lord. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, we commit this time to you, Lord, and uh, we recognize that um, you have a word for us. Uh, we would be remiss to, uh, to just glaze over through that. Uh, we, we know that you have authority over us, and we would be remiss not to listen to your marching orders right now. But Father, for us to hear you, we need your spirit, not me. And so not my thoughts, but your thoughts. Not my words, but your words. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a phrase that uh, I think we throw around a little bit from time to time. I've always heard it as a negative phrase. Um, It's it's when you say something to the effect of uh, the guy acts like he owns the place. Guy walks around like he owns the place. We usually mean that as some, uh, there's just way too much swagger going on, overconfidence. We mean that he's cocky or he's conceited or something like that, right? Except that if you were to Google this right now, you'd discover that this is actually becoming kind of a, uh, a coaching strategy for success. And uh, a lot of business and career coaches are actually encouraging this as a tactic for your own confidence. Walk in like you own the place, right? Um, when you enter a room, they say, and there's multiple websites I pulled all this, this stuff from. When you enter a room, you just act like you own it. You straighten up your posture. You, know, you, you, uh, you practice a couple of power moves in the mirror before you, before you do it. If you watch really close, some of the pastors, we do that right before we come up to preach. Got a little mirror over here. We just, um, straighten your posture, exude confidence. You know, um, uh, the more you believe in your capabilities, the more capable you will be. And so you have to fake it until you, you make it and be on your game from the moment that you arrive and walk confident and act like you own the place, except that you don't own the place, Right? I mean, that sign is at an airport. <laughs> Try it, right? Walk into the airport and see if you get past security that way, acting like you own the place. See if they let you take one of those planes out for a, a spin. That Chances are, no. What we see presented in the Gospels is this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth 
walking around like he owns the place. Because he does. Acting like he made the place. Because he did. Acting like he's the guy in charge. Because he is. He's the king. And what we get in this passage is this really cool, concise little window into this because what, the events that we're covering this Sunday and, and next Sunday's sermon cover one 24-hour period, a day in the life of Jesus' ministry. We see that this morning we're going to see what happened from the, the Sabbath morning, kind of a Saturday morning until into the night that night, and then tomorrow or next week we'll look at what happened the next, the next morning. We'll find out what happened there. And in a single day, we're going to see the authority of Jesus as king over several major areas. In this passage, you'll see this. His, Jesus the king has authority over the discourse, over the demonic, and over disease and disability. He has authority over all kinds of things, but in this passage, you're going to see these three things specifically. Discourse, the demonic, disease, and disability. Let me start with that first one. And by the, saying that he has authority over the discourse, I, just, I, I merely mean that the authority of his, of his words um, Jesus has something to say in the long line of history's teachers that rises to a different level. Verse 22 says, The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. What he says floors them. What he says in this moment is the best sermon that they've ever heard. What did he say? We don't know. Doesn't that strike you as kind of funny? I mean, they're, they're in awe, but Mark doesn't bother telling you what they're in awe of. It's more about who they're in awe of, right? Imagine that it just seems funny. Like if you guys were to come, uh, let's say after the service and say, hey, Kevin, last week I skipped Stonebridge. I went to this other church and let me tell you, it was the best sermon I have ever heard. I've been listening to you guys. You set the bar kind of low. This one was really, really good. I mean, this guy could preach and every jaw was dropped open and you could have heard a pin drop the whole, and I would go, what would I ask? I would say, wow, what did he say? And you say, well, yeah, honestly, I, I don't remember. I mean, the point is he was better than you. That's the point. See, Mark is going to get to the teaching later. But right now he doesn't want to focus on the teaching. He wants you to look at the, he's going to turn the mic off. He's going to pan the camera out to the crowd. He wants you to see their reaction, not to the teaching, but to the teacher. This Nazarene carpenter who has at this point just four disciples is acting like he owns the place. He's, he taught them, it says, as one who had authority. And it says it wasn't like the scribes. He wasn't quoting other people's work. There were no footnotes. There are no citations. There's no, in my learned opinion, there's no building on other people's arguments. The scribes were, at best, middle management kind of authority, right? One author I, wrote, I, I read said um, they were in bondage to the quotation mark. You understand? Just the idea that they just had to, they had to live within the quotes of other people. Their authority was contingent on the authority of others. All they could do was quote sources, but Jesus is the source. He's the, the author. And it's not that Jesus said it because it was true. It was true because Jesus said it. Remember, he said, I am the way and the truth. I am the truth and the life. The word authority in Greek, which is, by the way, a huge word in the Gospel of Mark. It's used multiple times. It's used twice in this passage. The word um, refers to substance. It means he spoke out of substance. He spoke out of, the, out of the original stuff is one way you could translate it. Authority, we know when in English, is the same root as the word author, right? Because he, Jesus is the author 
of this. He taught with original authority rather than derived authority. He's not simply interpreting the scriptures. He's the origin of the scriptures. He's, he's the word. He's the author. He's the king. So let me ask, I mean, what, what are you going to do with that? What do we do with that today? How do you respond to Jesus' teaching? We don't, just, we don't just take it under advisement. It's not advice for us. It's not something just for us to think about. It's not just good advice. We wouldn't treat our boss that way or we wouldn't treat him that way for very long, right? We wouldn't treat a judge that way who has ordered us, has summoned us to appear. Or if we did treat him that way, we would be in contempt of court, right? We understand those lesser um, uh, titles as authorities over our life, and yet the ultimate authority of our life, so often we treat as the author of the 10 suggestions. Jesus said in Luke six forty six, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? When I was in college, um, I was sensing, long story short, I was sensing this call to ministry that I did not want. God was calling. I was not picking up the phone. Um, I was just letting it ring. And, but I played some fun games, Jonah style, to pretend, to make it look like I was trying to be, I think maybe to try and tell myself that I was trying to be obedient. And so I, I pulled this one off. I, I, so I wanted to go to grad school. Um, and uh, I was kind of going down a certain a certain path. And, and I said, here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to apply to grad school, uh, several of them. And if I don't get into any of them, then I'm going to take that as a sign that I'm supposed to go to seminary instead. Wouldn't that, that would be so great for me to stand up in front of you guys and go, hey, guess what? Y'all are my plan B. <laughs> plan A didn't work out for me. So I just want to tell you, I'm, I'm here against my will, but here I am, right? So, so uh, I even went, I went to Urbana, big missions conference. Some of you guys have been to that. They do it every three years up in, in, uh, in Illinois. But even there, playing games by going to all the seminars that were about how to be a witness in grad school, conveniently avoiding any, any seminar that had the word seminary or missions in the title, just avoiding those like the plague. And the roommate that I was assigned while I was there, he was this awesome Puerto Rican guy from New York, and I think he saw through it, and a few days in, he said this to me, seared in my head, word for word. I remember standing outside the door as, he's, as he says this to me. He says, Kevin, before you go asking God for his will, you better make up your mind that you're going to do what he tells you. So you can thank, among other people, you can thank that guy for me standing in front of you today. Um, Jesus, your authority is, is telling you this is how you're meant to live. This is how you're meant to live. Not just the convenient stuff, not just selectively. Not just the socially acceptable stuff. This is what I'm calling you to. And Jesus has the right and the authority. He's the king of your life. He has the right and the authority to call you to those things. So a few months ago in a, in a Sunday school class, I heard Cliff Wright. He said, um, Jesus doesn't want to just be the top drawer in your dresser. And you go, look, I've prioritized him. He's at the top. He wants to be the whole dresser. He wants to be the frame that holds all of it together. All of you. Under his kingship. What does Jesus want from you? Not much, just everything. Everything under his lordship. And he has the right to call you to that because he's your king. So he has authority over the discourse, right? Um, he's the author. He's the first word. He's the last word. But we also see here, the second thing is, is that Jesus has authority over the demonic. Verse 23 says this. 
Just then, a man in their synagogue. Remember, this happened, this was like their equivalent of Sunday worship, right? So picture this happening this morning at Stonebridge. It would be a very lively service. I know what you'd be talking about over Mother's Day dinner. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, it's the same authority that the people feel, the demons feel. Except, notice this, the demons have a whole lot better idea than the people do of who Jesus really is, which should scare us. They knew who he was. It says later at the end of the passage, it says that Jesus cast out a whole bunch more demons, but he wouldn't let them speak because they all knew who he was. They all got the memo. They all know who Jesus is. Now, the question is, if you know that and you're a demon and you're the enemy, why would you tell anyone? Why would you blurt that out? It seems an odd strategy, if he's your enemy, to tell everyone how great he is, the Holy One of God, right? But this is not a testimonial. This is actually a defensive move for the demons. In fact, I think it's an attack. R.C. Sproul explains this in, a, in his commentary on Mark, which I got to say, um, his commentaries are, are great. And what he does is he takes a, 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 a phrase from each book that he writes, uh, a phrase from, from that, that book of the Bible, and uses it as the subtitle of his book. And so the, the phrase that he uses for this one is right out of the passage we're looking at this morning. It's, he taught them as one who had authority. But I have to say that on the cover of that book, I just feel like that's, that's very unfortunately placed, right? R.C. Sproul. He taught them as one who had authority, Mark. So um, I'll talk to R.C. It's a great book, but just an unfortunate title. That's all. And it's really unfortunate because that was going to be the title of Rick's autobiography, uh, and now he can't use that. So that's really sad. All right. Revealing one name to an adversary was seen as an act of submission. When Jacob asked the angel for his name, he was asking him to submit. That is why the demon revealed Jesus' name. It was one last attempt to get rid of him. The demon unveiled his identity, thinking that if he named him properly, he could defeat him. So the demon is saying, I have your identity, and so I have the upper hand. I know you. I know your name. Last year, I reread a book that I had read as a kid by Ursula Le Guin called A Wizard of Earthsea. I don't know if you guys have ever read that story. Uh, there's a great scene where the hero, uh, his name is Ged, he's a wizard, and he's, he's asked to rid the archipelago of this ancient dragon that they call the Dragon of Pendor. And so he goes out alone in this little tiny boat to go confront the dragon, who turns out to be so uh, enormous that um, at first Ged thinks that the dragon is actually the mountain itself or part, a big part of the mountain. The dragon starts taunting this little guy in this little boat, and Ged says, I did not come here to play or to be played with. I came to strike a bargain with you. Like a sword in sharpness, but five times the length of any sword, the point of the dragon's tail arched up scorpion-wise over his mailed back above the tower. Dryly he spoke, I strike no bargains, I take What have you to offer that I cannot take from you when I like? Ged replied, safety, your safety. Swear that you will never fly eastward of Pendor, and I will swear to leave you unharmed. A grating sound came from the dragon's throat like the noise of an avalanche far off, stones falling among mountains. Fire danced along his three-forked tongue. He raised himself up higher, looming over the ruins. You offer me safety? You threaten me with what? 
with your name, Yavad. Ged's voice shook as he spoke the name, yet he spoke it clear and loud. At the sound of it, the old dragon held still, utterly still. A minute went by, and another. And then Ged, standing there in his rocking chip of a boat, smiled. He had staked this venture and his life on a guess drawn from old histories of dragon lore, a guess that this dragon of Pendor was the same that had spoiled the west of Oskil in the days of old. The guess had held. When he spoke the dragon's name, it was as if he held the huge being on a fine, thin leash, tightening it on its throat. We are matched, Yavad. You have the strength. I have your name. Will you bargain? See, the hero of this story has the upper hand because he has the dragon's name. In Mark's story, it's the dragon trying to get the upper hand because he has the hero's name. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, which you can picture if it was said in a different tone, in a different setting, would be a wonderful profession of faith, right? But here it's more of famous last words. And Jesus says in five words in the Greek, basically shut up and get out. With Jesus, that's all it takes. That's his authority, right? There's no incantations, there's no holy water, there's no vomiting pea soup, whatever you picture an exorcism looking like. That's not what happens here. He just says, shut up and get out. Get out of this man. And he does. Verse 27 says the response. They were all so amazed that they questioned among themselves, saying, who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. This guy acts like he owns the place. There's a lot we could say about this, but there's one point in this particular spot that I don't want us to miss. Um, Knowing who Jesus is is not saving faith. The demons know who Jesus is. Believing that Jesus is the Holy One of God, the authoritative King of the universe, the authoritative King of creation, doesn't make you a Christian. It might just make you a very qualified demon. It is easy to live your life assuming that because you know and believe the basic plot about this whole Christian story, that that makes you a Christian. And the best argument against that is this guy and every other one that lines up saying, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And that should scare us a bit. I think it should make us ask, okay, so what's the difference between me and him? What's the difference between a disciple and a demon? It's not your moral goodness. We'll get to that in just a minute. But for starters, it's helpful to remember that there is a big difference between believing about someone and believing in someone. Big difference in the way we use those words, right? There's a difference between saying, I know you and I trust you. If you're married, you know this. Hopefully, you know your spouse. You know who they are. You would recognize them at the store, right? I hope. But there's a big difference between saying, I know you and saying, I trust you. There's a big difference that's, that's different when we're actually committing our life to someone, when we're choosing to trust them, when we're choosing to live in communion with them, right? It's the same with Jesus. It starts with, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, but it doesn't end there. It moves from there to a place of relationship and trust. That's the difference between a demon and a disciple. So in one worship service, it was a very lively morning in Capernaum, right? In one worship service, Jesus has demonstrated his authority over the word, over deed, over discourse, and over the demons. 
But now the service is over and they, they cross the street and he walks into one more realm where we see that Jesus is absolutely in control. Authority over disease and disability. Verse 29, it says, um, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And I hope I'm not the only one that's, uh, I, this week as I've been preparing the sermon, this has come more to life for me as I've tried to picture the scene, as I've actually tried to put myself there. You guys remember that these are not fun fables and myths. These are stories that happened in a real place, in a, in a real moment in time, uh, on a real Sabbath day. And um, I'm, I'm gonna try and paint the picture for you, so I'm just gonna uh, ask you to, to bear with me for a minute. Through the wonders of, of Google Earth, uh, zooming in on Israel, you'll see that uh, sea on the bottom is the Dead Sea. The one on top is the Sea of Galilee, and there's Capernaum on the northwest corner of uh, the Sea of Galilee. That's what it looks like today, right? Um, you can go there today and you can visit a fourth century synagogue called the White Synagogue because it's, it's made out of limestone, but it's built on the floor of the original synagogue that we're reading about in this passage, the one that Jesus was in. It's built on the floor of the first century synagogue. And then if you'll notice that little round thing right there in between the synagogue and the, and the beach, guys, that's most likely Peter's house. We actually have a, and talk to me later, I can give you that evidence, but we have very good reason, we can't know for 100%, but we have very good reason to believe that that is actually Peter's house. Today, they've actually put a, a monument on it. There's a building that they, that round building they put over it, has a glass floor so you can walk into the museum and you can walk on the glass floor and look down into the archaeological dig that is most likely Peter's house, Andrew's house, Peter's mother-in-law's house, the house where Jesus didn't have a home, but this is where he spent a lot of time. Like, there it is, right there. I want you to, regardless of, of what, uh, what we know about this, regardless of whether that's his spot or not, I want you to put yourself in this scene for a moment. Just put yourself on the beach, on the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, 30 AD, on a, a typical Saturday, Church has just ended, and um, five guys, right? Jesus, Peter and Andrew, James and John, his four disciples, they, uh, they walk down the bank towards the shore, down towards his mother's place, his mother-in-law's place, except when he gets there, they find out his mother-in-law's sick. She has a fever. Uh, Luke calls it a high fever. He was a doctor, so he, there, there's his official medical diagnosis, right? It was a high fever. And the first healing of Mark's gospel the big kickoff to at least 30 featured healings that are listed in the Gospels, right, is, is this one. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. And so he went to her, took her by the hand, helped her up, fever left her, and she began to wait on them. I don't want to demean this. This is awesome, especially if you're the mother-in-law. This is awesome, right? But there's, there's nothing particularly dramatic about this, Right? Jesus has just publicly cast out a demon in a worship service. That's what you would have remembered. That was big. This one is private. This one's kind of domestic. It's, it's honestly a, a little bit ordinary. The first miracle story in John is turning water into wine. That's a big one, right? First miracle story in Matthew is touching a leper. You didn't do that. That was kind of an interesting one. But here it's, I don't know, I think that Jesus probably performed bigger medical issues than this before the night was over with all the crowd that showed up. Mark starts here with this one. Why? Go back to week one. Rick told us the gospel of Mark is John Mark's account and he uses the eyewitness account of who for this? Do you remember? It's Peter. This is Peter's story. This is his family. 
And it might not be the healing that we would spotlight, but Peter is really happy to start here because this is his mother-in-law. Happy Mother's Day, y'all. I mean, Jesus cares about your mother-in-law, right? Jesus is concerned about the, the family of the people that he loves. Jesus is concerned about meeting ordinary needs. And she gets up and it says she immediately begins to serve them, which makes this, I think, to me, a, a very funny Mother's Day passage. It's like, okay, mom, you're feeling better. Now get back to work, right? <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. Get to work. But how cool that this woman who has probably never felt better than she feels at this very moment in her life, right? To feel all of her energy back in one moment to say, I'm going to use this to serve others. And this guy who just, I mean, when Matthew shares the same account, he, he says there's one word that's just slightly different. He's, uh, uh, this passage says that he, she got up and served them, but Matthew says she got up and served him. I mean, isn't that a great response? When we see God show up in our life, that we would say, I will serve Jesus with all the energy now that he's given me. But at sundown, the, um, the scene shifts. It gets much more public, right? That evening after sunset, says verse 32, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. This was probably a town of about 10,000 people, and maybe there's some hyperbole, but I think that if you'd been there and the word had gotten out that there was a, a you'd, you'd be bringing him your aches and pains too. Doc, it hurts when I do this. I mean, whatever. You'd be lined up at Peter's door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. So I want you to try and imagine the scene. Just go there with me for a moment if you could. You've got, you've got the geography. You can picture it. The sun has gone down. This is actually a picture of the sunset on the Sea of Galilee over Capernaum today. Allow me to use just a little bit of conjecture, okay? There's a breeze on the lake coming off the lake. It's a pleasant night. The sun has gone down. Everyone in town is gathered around Peter's house. We know that. And I can't help but imagine, I don't know what the tone was when it started. I imagine there might have been, the tone might have been um, angst and maybe um, a lot of uh, um, clamoring. But I can't imagine it stayed like that for very long. I can't help but imagine that as people start getting healed, the joy of the moment, the festiveness of the moment, the festiveness of people who have never felt better now than they do. There's this, I picture this bonfire in Peter's backyard and all of the, the, the folks that had been bedridden are now throwing their mattresses on it for fuel. All the people who are lame are throwing their crutches on it for fuel. The comatose, they're awake and they're alert and the blind can make out the features of their family and the mute can speak again and the deaf can hear them. And the demons have all fled and the people that, they were, that were plagued by them are now released and they're free and they're whole. Guys, this is a community just in this moment. This beach party is a community of the healed and the whole celebrating the one who has authority over every disease, over every disability. And the sound, if you had been on the other side of the lake, the sound that you would have heard coming across the lake in that moment would have been the sound of, of laughter and music and dancing and ridiculous joy. And the reason I want to paint that picture is because I feel like that this moment of wholeness is a little campfire of the coming kingdom. See, we think of miracles as this... Um, interruption, strange interruptions into our natural world, but that's not what they are. They're natural interruptions into our strange world. Let me explain that. They're not a suspension of the natural order. 
The miracles are actually a picture of it. The world as it is right now is not normal. The world as it is right now is, is not what it was meant to be. It's not what it was created to be. And it's not what it's, where it's heading and what it's going to be one day, right? And so these moments that we see in this day in the life of Jesus and throughout the book of Mark, what they are, they're incursions of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of brokenness to show what things are supposed to be like, to show how things were meant to work, to show where things are going. It's dragging heaven in, right? An author named Jared Wilson says this. He says, miracles don't turn things upside down, but right side up. The stuff that happened on a Saturday in Capernaum in 30 AD is a picture of the one-day perfected normal that we have to experience. It's a glimpse of what the world was meant to be. The kingdom is a place where the most normal things of all are that the king would speak with authority and that the demons would flee and that all sickness and all disability would be eradicated. That's the normal of the kingdom of heaven. That's the normal of the kingdom of God. And that's where this world is heading when, in the words of the King James and and Handel's Messiah, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Amen? And ever. (laughs) Jesus wasn't healing people to authenticate himself. We sometimes think, well, the miracles were so that Jesus could prove that he was divine. It's like, hey, guys, I'm divine. Watch me pull a rabbit out of this hat. Watch. That's not what it was. He was doing all of this to back up the claim that the kingdom of God has come. He's already said the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is near. And these miracles are an authentication of that. It's a foretaste of what it will look like. I love the way an old guy named B.B. Warfield once put it. He said, when our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. One way to apply that, for the believer, your healing is a guarantee. Think about that for a minute. It's not clear whether that will happen on this side of glory or on the other but it's a promise. Your healing is a guarantee. A community where we get to celebrate life as it was meant to be and all of that freedom from pain and hurt and sickness and suffering and oppression all becomes this this joyous laughter that echoes over the glassy sea. That's where this is going. And so the beach party at Capernaum is, is an anticipation of your own party. I just picture what that would look like for us to just out back of Peter's house to just burn the hospital beds, to burn the walkers, throw, chuck the wheelchairs in the lake, flush the meds. You don't need them anymore. I know this is an imperfect picture, what we're seeing in this moment, in this passage. We've got to imagine that many of those people, they were just there for the healing. They, I don't, I'm not looking for a Messiah. I just want to feel better. But we have to picture that some of these folks at least were like Peter's mother-in-law who took her I've never felt better moment and used it to serve Jesus and to serve Jesus' people. And for the record, and I can't go into all of it now, but we know by looking at that archaeological dig that Peter's house, pretty quickly, they had to add on to it. And they had to add on to it more. And they had to strengthen the walls and they had to create a dome and eventually a courtyard that led into the other places that allowed them for them to to have a large group of people and they hung religious art and they wrote um, Christian, Christian uh, words on, on the walls and we know that this moment, like this place became, a, it wasn't just a house anymore, it was a gathering. This was the church at Capernaum and I have to imagine that this, um, uh, this, this evening crowd of the bungled and the botched 
have to be part of the new congregation. And their kids have to be the recipients of that, of that goodness, that new congregation. But there's one more important thing that I think is important to say. And, and you know, this was a great night of victory, but here's the point. Although this was a great night of victory, this wasn't where the real battle was. As we get deeper into the Gospel of Mark, you know, we're calling this series King's Cross, and you're going to see things moving from the crown to the cross, from the king to the cross, from one who is claiming his authority over everything to one who's willingly submitting and setting it aside. And the reason is, all of these happy beach party people eventually died, right? There was a much greater enemy for them than leprosy or lameness or blindness or all the rest. Folks, for you, there is a much greater enemy than injury or cancer or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. Our greatest brokenness is our failure to live up to what we were created to be, our failure to, to, to be everything that God has called us to be in Christ, to, to live the holy standard that allows us to be in God's presence, to, to keep God's law. That's our brokenness. That's our greatest injury. If you've been here a while at Stonebridge, I know you probably have this message by now. Um, but if you're new to the conversation, if you're new here this morning, please receive this in the most loving way possible. You are not by nature a good person. And you say, you can't say that, you don't know me. No, you're right, I don't know you, but this book knows you, right? This book reveals a God who understands you better than you understand him. And it says that your basic problem is that you have not loved, you are not loving and you will not love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself without some amazing rescue from outside of you because it won't happen based on the brokenness that is you. And that anything short of that, anything short of that holiness excludes you from God's presence. So cheer up, it's okay, you're in good company, we're all that way, we're all a mess, it's all good. But that's what Jesus came to do. That's what the good news is, right? Not to heal some diseases and disabilities 2,000 years ago. Not to take care of, of your peripheral needs, but to heal the deepest needs of your soul. All of that holiness shortfall in our lives we call sin, and it says that the wages of sin is death. What we're earning is death. The punishment for that is death. We're earning death by our failure to live holy lives. And that's where Jesus really goes with the kingdom. That's where he brings it. He brings it right to death's door. He doesn't stop at the injuries and the external. He goes straight for the heart of it. This, this thing that happened on the beach in Capernaum was a border skirmish. Jesus is heading towards the heart of the battle. He doesn't just want to meet some peripheral needs in your life. He doesn't just want to sprinkle your day with some Jesus juice. He's going much deeper than that. He came to be sin for you, to take the punishment for that sin, which is death, so that you could have life forever with him. That's the offer. And Matthew 8, Matthew shares the same story, but what's cool about Matthew is because he's writing to a Jewish audience, he wants to always make the point that when Jesus did things, he fulfilled things. And so when, when Matthew tells the story, he adds a little something to it. After Jesus heals all these people, Matthew says this. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, 4. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. He says, Jesus did that. But if you go back and read not just four, but the rest, five and six, it says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. See, that's where the inbreaking of the kingdom ultimately goes. Jesus brings those same trailing clouds of glory, not just to leprosy and lameness, but right to death's door. That's where he brings it. And then he takes it beyond. That's what you're called to put your trust in. That's the difference between a demon and a disciple. It's to say, Jesus, you, you teach with authority and you act with authority, but more than that, you are my authority. I recognize that you're my king. You shouted down death so that, <laughs> so that I could live for you. And so, Jesus, I'm asking you to come in right here and act like you own the place because you do. Because you have the right to that. Let's pray. Father, you know that uh, there are areas where we may have, if we're honest, surrendered to you. We've given you the steering wheel. And if we're honest, there's plenty of other areas, Lord, where we're still hanging on to the wheel we, uh, we have not truly submitted to our king. We've not truly recognized your authority in those areas. And in those areas, Lord, you know that we're living as functional atheists. But Father, I pray that you would pry our hands off of the places that we're so scared to give you. And that we would trust you, Lord, not just because you're the authority of our lives, but because you're good. And so giving you these things is not a burden for us because we know that you know what to do with them better than we do. You know how to guide us. You know how we need to live better than we do. We're about to give our tithes and offerings, Lord, and you know our finances are one place where we we tend to really cling, where we maybe haven't invited you in as Lord. And we pray that this moment of giving would be a symbol, not just of the giving of of our wealth, but the giving of our lives to you, Lord. It all belongs to you. We belong to you. We want to live under your lordship and we pray that you would give us that even in the week ahead in Jesus' name. Amen.